When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For all the talk of lockdowns across the globe, some industries just have to keep operating. But which ones? There's a surprising variety in what different cultures call their key workers, for whom it's a blessing and a curse. And while we non-key workers keep hanging around the house, what to do? We ask around and find that our editors and correspondents are up to an interesting array of activities in these strange times. First up, though. Prisons are notorious incubators of disease. Most prisons around the world have two to three to 10 to 15, in some cases, even more prisoners confined in the same space. Raphael Rowe served 12 years for a crime he was eventually acquitted of. He now presents the Netflix documentary series Inside the World's Toughest Prisons. Take the Philippines, for example, the most overcrowded prisons I've ever seen. There is no space for those prisoners to sleep. The spoon position, that's the only way I can describe it. It's like the spoon position, lay on the floor, side by side. Disease among those prisoners is prolific. This week, the World Health Organization issued guidance on mitigating risks of COVID-19 in prisons, emphasizing the danger to the wider public. Not only are the prisoners a threat from prison officers, and prison officers are a threat from prisoners, but when those officers or members of staff move out of that prison, they take it with them. There is no way of controlling it. On Wednesday, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, called on government to release some inmates as a way to stop prisons becoming hotspots for the disease. Authorities should examine ways to release those particularly vulnerable to COVID-19, such as older and sick detainees, to drastically reduce prison populations so physical distancing becomes possible. They should also consider releasing low-risk offenders. Some countries have started to do so. Among those countries is Ethiopia, whose president this week pardoned 4,000 prisoners. Iran has already temporarily released around 80,000. But in few places is the issue more pressing than in America, which has now recorded more cases of coronavirus than China has. Yesterday, the Attorney General Bill Barr ordered the increased use of home imprisonment for older inmates with underlying conditions. 
America has around a fifth of the world's prison population. Concern is growing about the part those two million prisoners could play in spreading the virus across the country. Well, America's prisons and its jails are overcrowded hotspots where there is great fear that the coronavirus could spread. Adam Roberts is our Midwest correspondent. Basically, there's a historical memory that when America suffered the Spanish flu 100 years ago, prisons and jails were also centres for spreading a virus. If you look, for example, at San Quentin Prison in California back in 1918, in just two months, 500 of its 1,900 inmates were infected with the Spanish flu. So we have a history of knowing that these prisons and jails, just like universities or schools, can be centres for great transmission. So what's the story so far? What's the mood in American prisons now? Well, day by day, I think anxiety is rising. We hear reports from all around the country of inmates, detainees, who are protesting and upset that they are vulnerable to catching the virus. We've had inmates at an immigrant detention centre in New Jersey who've launched a hunger strike, saying they don't have sufficient soap to keep themselves clean. At Rikers in New York, detainees this week were refusing to leave their cells because they're so worried about infections that are spreading on the prison island, both among staff and, I think, among the detainees themselves. I spoke this week to Tom Dart, who's the sheriff of Cook County here in Chicago. He runs a huge jail in Chicago, and he told me he feels like he's juggling with impending disaster. He's already had detainees who are confirmed with the virus. He lacks the ability to test enough of his detainees to know how much it's spreading, and he doesn't even have enough protective gear for his staff. And I suppose it's it's difficult to put a stop to that. I mean, you can't just shut down a prison. Yes. So as Sheriff Dart said to me, this is not like a hotel or a university. You just cannot close these places down. Obviously, you're locking up some people who need to be inside for reasons of public safety. And you can't stop the guards coming in and out. They're going to be bringing in infections from outside, perhaps, into the jails and prisons. And those viruses are probably going to be spreading within the prison. So you can't close this down. You can't actually seal them in bubble wrap, is a phrase that he used. It's just not possible. He's been setting up tents for quarantine in a former mental health centre. In other jails and prisons around the country, special areas have been set aside for sick detainees to go to. There have been efforts to use more bleach water when cleaning food trays and to quiz detainees about sickness in the family. But the truth is, you're not going to be able to stop the virus getting into some of these places. It's already there. But what about the idea of just decreasing the prison population, releasing people if necessary? Is that something that you think is feasible in the States? Yes, that's also been talked about. In fact, it's already underway. So dozens of cities and counties are beginning to find methods by which they can reduce the populations, especially of jails, which hold people before they're convicted, before they're tried. And so you can see two or three different measures. One is that you can reduce the inflow of people. So you're finding that police are arresting fewer people. In California, for example, in Los Angeles County, the sheriff there says that daily arrests used to be 300. They've come down to 60. Here in Chicago, Tom Dart told me that he would typically get 100 people coming into his jail every day. That's been reduced to about 50. And so the inflow is reducing, and that overall will then reduce the numbers of people who are kept in jails. The second thing you can do is to start to release people who are the most vulnerable. This would include the elderly, the pregnant, people who have underlying conditions anyway. And so you're beginning to see in some counties, for example, in Kentucky, in Texas, 
here in Illinois and elsewhere, that those who are thought to be most prone to being infected and therefore getting very ill from coronavirus are going to be let out. And a third thing you could look at is whether people who are being kept behind bars but aren't really a threat to public safety, so non-violent detainees, whether they can safely be released as well. And if you look around America, there's a huge number of people who are kept in prison and in jail. There's 1.29 million people in state prisons alone. There's 630,000 people in jails. And most of these people, at least more than half of these people, are being held for non-violent crimes. So releasing them, even temporarily, wouldn't necessarily be any problem when it comes to public safety. But, but whatever the policies, the ones already being enacted, the ones being talked about, what have you, it all has to happen fast. Yes, it does make sense to do this as quickly as you can. And you can see that cities and counties around the country, some of them at least, are moving very quickly. They are understanding that if you want to get ahead of the curve, you want to actually prevent the infection spreading widely, you need to act early. And in some places, they've already been planning to do this anyway. They've been trying to bring down the jail and prison population. So they're speeding up some of the measures that were underway anyway. So in a sense, then the pandemic could have long-term non-epidemiological effects on prison populations more generally, do you think? Could all of this just simply reduce those outlandish prison populations in America? There is that possibility. If you talk to prison reformers, you talk to academics who follow this stuff very closely, they talk about this being in some ways a natural experiment that's underway, or because of the pandemic, we're pushing at a door that was already opening, that there's an effort underway to bring down America's jail and prison populations. We can do that by reducing the inflow, by not arresting so many people. And you can also release elderly and the nonviolent earlier in their terms. So these efforts were underway before the pandemic came. And it could just be that the pandemic will nudge these efforts to become faster and maybe make a more permanent and deep cut into the populations. And that obviously would be something that the reformers would be very pleased to see. Adam, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. To follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The pandemic is causing more than just reconsiderations of the incarcerated. It's also nudging policymakers to confront broader questions about our societies. Lockdowns have ground many businesses to a halt, even as leaders work to shore up the vital industries that can't be put on pause. That means that a number of key workers are being asked to head out when everyone else is being told to stay home. So, my name is Adrian Passmore. I am the owner of uh, Red Kite Cycles in Solihull. How do I feel about being a key worker? Very conflicted, actually. 
My name's Holly Edwards. I am a teacher in an independent school in East London. Uh, I am a bit surprised that I'm a key worker. Hi, my name's Charles Wallin. I work for Gopher as a courier. I feel that we are vital at the moment to get where one's indoors to get things to people. It is a bit strange at school at the moment. Obviously, I think we've only got a very small number of kids. It is very scary, but, um, uh, yeah, it's not fantastic, to tell you the truth. But, you know, I'm still just cracking on and trying to do my best with it. Just trying to maintain sensible distance with the public has been a bit of a challenge. Yeah, it does make you really appreciate what school is like when it's really busy. I do feel proud that I'm, uh, that I'm doing my bit, so to speak. Deciding just what counts as a key industry has raised a series of, well, key questions. A key worker is essentially a political designation. It's somewhat arbitrary, but it is somebody whose work is deemed to be essential and needs to continue even in this period of crisis. Stanley Pignol is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent. By and large, what governments want is to keep as many people at home as possible, while at the same time still having basic services that people need while they are at home. So what do people need? They need things like supermarkets, they need things like pharmacies, but even things like banks and so on still need to remain open. What gets interesting is you get into a sort of gray zone at one point, which is what is an essential service? Is cutting your hair an essential service? How about vets? And this is where governments have to make decisions based on tradition and based on what what their voters really care about, even at times like this. And those cultural concerns, the, the what voters care about varies a lot from country to country? Yeah, exactly. So it depends on what country you're in. And often, actually, it depends on the sheer lobbying muscle of some of these industries. So take bookshops in France. France protects its cultural sector at every turn. It is a sector that is intensely mollycoddled. When the economy went into lockdown, bookshops were originally in the list of stores that needed to close. The finance minister, who, as it turns out, turns out books on the side, then came in and said, actually, books should be like pharmacies and like supermarkets. They should also be designated as basic necessities, so they should be allowed to stay open. Another example in France where I'm based is wine shops. Um, Originally, they were closed, but then hurriedly reopened. So basically, wine in France is on par with supermarkets or with pharmacies. Uh, One which is perhaps even more surprising is cannabis. In the Netherlands and in California, Uh, Same thing happened. Originally, the dispensaries closed, but then I think politicians figured out these are times where maybe people might be feeling anxious and maybe cannabis is a solution. What about the businesses themselves? We've heard all about the efforts made to help those that have been forced to close. Is it maybe a blessing that some get to keep their doors open? Well, a bit of both. I mean, obviously, it is a benefit if you can stay open. Insofar as anyone is allowed to be out on the streets shopping, then they can come into your store. There is another advantage, actually, um, which is that in some countries, your staff, if you're a store that remains open, can be considered uh, key workers. And that can have advantages for the staff. So in the UK, for example, uh, children of employees in some sectors can still send their kids to school to ensure that their parents can still work. 
If there are advantages to staying open, there are also potentially disadvantages. There is a suspicion in parts of the business community that if your business stays open, you won't be eligible for government help, government grants that seem to be coming through the pipeline thick and fast at the moment. That means that, ironically, some businesses are lobbying to stay shut. Specifically to to stay eligible for bailout programs to come? Yeah, that's the suspicion. I mean, on top of not necessarily wanting to interact with the wider public. But take hairdressers, for example. In Germany, they were originally exempted from closure. Um, So vital, apparently, are they considered to the well-being of Germans. Uh, But then a petition got signed, I think by over 100,000 people, pointing out how difficult it is to cut hair while still keeping six feet away from people, which actually is fair enough. But here again, the suspicion is that if they stay open, they won't be able to claim compensation. But I suppose that's that's exactly the point, is that the, the, the business being open increases a risk of transmission. I mean, what, what about the workers in these industries, whether or not the bosses are happy to keep the doors open? Are the, are the, the employees happy to go through it? So you've certainly heard unions complaining in France, and I think in other places you've seen a certain degree of of grumbling. There are a couple of things that shops are doing to try and reduce the risk of either their staff or other customers uh, getting sick. Uh, I went to a supermarket here in France, uh, and you sense that the staff are are keeping their distance away from the customers, and they're asking the customers to keep a distance from each other, for example, when they're queuing. You know, my sense is that's something that we are going to see quite a lot uh, in future. Um, I was speaking to somebody in Singapore who said, you know, the restaurants are open, cafes are open, cinemas are open, but everything is socially distanced. So half the tables are blocked off. In cinemas, you can't sit next to each other. Uh, so that reduces the density of people and it reduces the, the chances of contamination. It also completely changes the business model of some of these places. But I, I think that's probably going to be the price to pay even when all these venues reopen gradually over time. Stanley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. There's no doubt that social distancing is one of the most important measures to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. But as many of us swap the cubicle for the couch, suits for sweatpants, and the gym for, well, a jog around the living room, One growing question is how to keep ourselves, our families, and even our furry friends entertained. We asked some of our correspondents how they're passing the time. One of the ways I relax is by watching crime dramas in obscure languages. That's Robert Guest, our foreign editor. With Netflix, you can find not just Japanese and Turkish, but also Flemish and Galician. One of my favourites at the moment is called Thieves of the Wood. This gebeurt about a sort of 18th century Belgian Robin Hood figure. And after you see what uh, cities in those days did to outlaws, well, quarantine in Buckinghamshire isn't so bad. Meanwhile, our obituaries editor, Anne Rowe, is planning more creative pursuits. If time really begins to drag, and it hasn't yet, I'm going to return to watercolour painting. Not landscapes, as I am not much allowed into them now, but objects around my flat. Flowers, pens, shelves. A paint box is a joy in itself, even when it's as messy as mine is. The simple blocks of colour waiting. The brush, the jar of water. And I discovered, even as a child, that nothing else draws you into such a deep contemplation of the essence of things. 
I work all day with words, and these can very well describe, say, an apple or a rose. But to understand it, you need to try to paint it. For many, there are others at home to think about, as we were reminded when we returned to our Midwest correspondent, Adam Roberts. I've got two 14-year-old sons, and we've got a love of playing board games, especially strategy games like Risk or Settlers of Catan. So we had the idea that it might be fun to try to design and then build our own board game. What do you want more that we just, like a game of chess, that you're just one against one and fighting each other? I think trade would be fine, but I, I like the idea of having that competition between each of the players instead yeah. of playing together to get to a goal. So it's a bit more exciting when yeah. you, you can beat your brother. Exactly. <laughs> OK. Um, so we've been dreaming up the rules, been dreaming up a theme for what it should be about... And the idea is that we can have a lot of fun by arguing about the rules of the game and then have a second lot of fun by playing it. And for those living in close quarters with a partner, hobbies can be hard to escape. We don't have dogs or cats or even a fish, so rotating a frozen chicken in a bag of buttermilk every few hours became a form of entertainment for me and my boyfriend last weekend. That's our Brazil correspondent, Sarah Maslin. I thought he was kind of cute when we brought him back from the grocery store, so I named him Philip. A couple days later, his carcass was sitting in a pot with some celery and carrots. My boyfriend's new obsession is making stocks. As it turns out, they're just as volatile as my investment account, because we don't have a big enough pot. My boyfriend tried to diversify by making one batch of chicken stock and one batch of vegetarian. But no matter how low we keep the temperature, we keep getting pretty low yields. Meanwhile, our social policy editor, Sasha Nauta, is finding comfort in training her dog, Izzy. Once or twice a day, I'll take a handful of treats and I'll train with her for just 10, 15 minutes or so, rewarding good behavior where it comes. And there are lots of really good films on YouTube that can help you do this. And it's great. It it knackers her, um, especially when there's a smell element to the work because such a large part of dogs' brains is devoted to, to smell. But it's also really relaxing for me and weirdly rewarding to see the progress day by day. So right now we're practicing rollover and play dead. And yep, yesterday she was only able to do this with three paws in the air. Today she is managing with four. Good girl. And as for me, I'm taking the week off and planning to get back to playing the bass more often. For those of you looking to pass the time with a fascinating listen, check out our sister podcast, The Economist Asks. This week, it's an interview with Sir David Attenborough about his life spent bringing the wonders of the world into people's homes. Suddenly, you got this little box in your hand and you could go anywhere in the world and bring back pictures. That was excitement. And uh, since I was a biologist, or was once, and what I wanted to do was go and look at aardvarks and uh, pangolins and sloths and hummingbirds. What an excitement. What a, what a fantastic thrill. And it didn't matter how badly you did it, and we, we did it pretty badly. But, but people said, ooh, look, that's a hummingbird. You know, ooh, look, that's a pangolin. So it was simply a godsend. I mean, so, so exciting. You can find The Economist Asks wherever you get your podcasts. 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. My colleague Patrick Lane will see you back here on Monday. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.